Amen. Good morning, First Baptist Church. We're glad that you chose to worship with us today. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. If you have your Bibles with you, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. It is a beautiful day outside, though it's cold, it is beautiful. Certainly here in Texas, it's a rare treat that we get to see snow. In fact, there's supposed to be several inches later today, and it is beautiful. Also looked at the forecast, next Sunday is supposed to have a high of 60. And so the best kind of winter is the one that lasts one week. So <laughs> I look forward to spring coming very soon, but in the meantime, we get to enjoy uh, the beautiful snow. Uh, here in Azle, Texas, or wherever you are. I don't know where you are, if it's snowing, but thank you for joining with us today. Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Today is Valentine's Day, so I thought it appropriate to share a Valentine's message uh, as we look at Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. There in your homes, wherever you are, you're welcome to stand. I always like to stand when it reads God's Word. It shows respect. You don't have to. We've been freed from the law, and the law doesn't even require it. But uh, I like to stand when I read God's Word, just out of respect to honor God's Word. So wherever you are, I challenge you to stand as we read Song of Solomon. Chapter 1, verse 2 says this. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Now hang on there, don't turn the channel. That's a great passage, and it makes a great point, and we're going to see that here in just a moment. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we thank you for your word, all of it. And I pray you would help us this Valentine's Day to understand what it is to love one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today's message is entitled, Great Gifts for Valentine's Day. Great Gifts for Valentine's Day. Did you know that according to tradition, about 250 years after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there was a priest by the name of Valentine. By some accounts, St. Valentine was both a Russian priest, uh, excuse me, a Roman priest in Rome, and he was also a, a physician, but he was executed during the persecution of Christians by the Emperor Claudius II around 270 AD. He is the patron saint of lovers, of epileptics, and bookkeepers. <laughs> Don't know why, that's an interesting group, lovers, epileptics, and bookkeepers. So if you're a lover, an epileptic, and a bookkeeper, he's really your guy uh, for that. But that's where St. Valentine came from. So now we have Valentine's Day on February the 14th. For whatever reason, we get together and celebrate his execution. That seems a bit odd. Um, but on this snowy, cold Valentine's morning, what did you get your loved one for Valentine's Day? What did you get your loved one? Well, I looked that up. Gifts to give your Valentine. Or I also looked up, uh, and I found a lot of articles uh, entitled generally something along the lines of Worst Valentine's Day Gifts Ever. What is the worst Valentine's Day gifts you ever received? One lady wrote this. She said, my ex, that is her ex-husband or ex-boyfriend, gave me a stuffed dog, teddy bear, which I thought was strange because I'm a cat person. But there was a little card pinned to its ear which had been signed, Love, Sarah. He re-gifted an old Valentine's gift that he had gotten from another girlfriend. <laughs> that's, that's a bad Valentine's. Another said this, 
He sent me a copy of the King James Bible because I was Catholic and my Bible, he said, was wrong. <laughs> he must have been Baptist. Uh, another, in fact, on most of the articles or all the articles I think I read for a bad Valentine's Day gift was anything to do with weight loss pills, membership to Weight Watchers, uh, or exercise equipment, anything that had to do with weight loss, don't give that on Valentine's Day. And then my favorite was uh, someone actually received a gas station hot dog gift certificate. <laughs> a gift certificate to a gas station hot dog. Uh, so, and then of course, in most of the articles I read, the worst gift you, you can get is nothing. And so if you're watching right now and you've got nothing for your loved one for Valentine, take heart because I have several gifts that you can offer your loved one today for Valentine's. And you don't have to slip out to Walmart and it won't cost you a nickel. And so watch closely or listen closely as we look at God's word. And so the first gift is this. If you love someone, and this may sound odd to you, but if you wanna give a great gift today, if you're a husband or a wife, or you or your spouse, you have children. If you wanna give a great Valentine's gift today, be a good parent. Now it doesn't end there, but it can start there. A great gift to give someone is to be a great parent. So, so how does someone become a great parent? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me give you four quick ways how you can become a great parent and give that gift today. Number one, you provide for them. You provide for them. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, it says this, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, I know I've shared this with my congregation before. I remember it because it's that last clause that gets me. I didn't know you could get worse than an unbeliever. And when he talks about an unbeliever, an unbeliever is someone who has not been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. An unbeliever is someone who has not had their sins forgiven by God. An unbeliever is someone whose destiny is to burn in judgment after they die rather than going to heaven. How can you get worse than that? Well, he actually says that. There is a category of people that are actually worse than an unbeliever. And who is that? It's a bad parent. So here's what he says, 1 Timothy 5, 8. And if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Someone who does not have faith can be trumped only by someone who claims to have faith but has renounced it or denied it. You claim to be a believer in Christ, but you don't love your family. You don't take care of your kids. There's a problem. Because love for Jesus Christ, love for God, is demonstrated in love for your children and for your family. Bad parenting is rampant in our society. And I don't want to sound judgmental, but many, if not most of the problems that we're facing in our nation and in our world aren't because of bad politics, it's because of bad parenting. Paul tells Timothy in this verse that even the lost provide for their families. But you cannot be a good parent and not provide for your children. And so that's what he says. You need to provide for your families. And I don't mean that you give them everything that they want. Uh, that's the, one of the worst things you can do as parents. Uh, you can give them everything that they want. That's not the loving thing. 
as parents, in fact, don't rob your children of the blessing of working and waiting for material things. Don't rob your children of the blessing of working and waiting for material things. Did my dad provide for me? You bet he did. He provided me with everything I needed and taught me the blessing of working and earning what I wanted in life. So sometimes you provide for your kid by giving the kids by giving them the things that they need. But beyond that, you help them learn to work and to wait on things that they don't have to have. When I was 17, I found the most beautiful car in the world, and I had to have it. Good friend of mine, Albert uh, Arispe was his name. He had this car. It was a 1974 Camaro, red, of course, Krager Mag wheels, if you know what that is. It was the bomb. It was the car to have, and I wanted that car. It, was, it had a million miles on it, but he wanted $2,000 for it. Back in the olden days, that was a lot of money. I didn't have $2,000. I probably didn't have $20, but I wanted that car so badly. So I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I want that car. Uh, I said, I found a car. I love the car. It's a great car. Can I have the car? And dad said, great, son. Congratulations to you. I love my dad. I miss him. He said, I tell you what I'm going to do. He says, I'm not going to get you that car. I'm not going to give you a nickel for that car. In fact, I won't even co-sign a loan for that car. But if you can figure out how to get that car, you just go right ahead. By the way, I had that car within three weeks. <laughs> I went to his mother, my grandmother. She loaned me the money. <laughs> but I understood what dad was trying to do. He wanted me to earn it. He wanted me to work for it. He wanted me to appreciate my car. And I did appreciate that car. It cost a lot of money for me. I had to work a lot of days, months, and even years at Gibson's Discount Center in Graham, Texas, so that I could pay back that car. So parents provide for your children, but also teach them. Which brings me to the second way you can provide for your children is by leading your children leading your children. And you say, well, I'm not a leader. Or what do you mean by leader, Pastor Lee? Well, I'm going to give you a working definition of leadership, whether it's your children or in your business or at church or anywhere else in life. Leaders take others to a place where they will not go or cannot go on their own. If they can get there on their own, they don't need leaders. Leaders take others to a place in life where they will not go or they cannot go on their own. There are places where your children need to go emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, where they're just not going to get there without your help. That's why God gave them you, to lead them to where they need to be in life. Just a word of warning, when you lead your children, be sure that you don't let your children lead you. You're the parent. They are not. You lead them. Now, they'll lead you if you let them, and they'll lead you in the wrong way. They don't have the experience or the wisdom that they need to lead the family in the right direction. You do. God entrusted them to you. He didn't entrust you to them. And so you need to lead them. I'm always amazed. I've met parents over the years who would come to our church with their youth, their, their children, and they're here because their children led them here. Their children had a friend. 
that went here, and so they wanted to come here, or they had a boyfriend or a girlfriend that came here, so they would come here. But as soon as that relationship broke up, or they got in a disagreement, or they didn't like church anymore, they stopped coming, and their parents just followed them to the next church, or no church. What kind of thinking is that? Parents, lead your children. You're the parent. They should follow you. When I woke up on Sunday morning, it never even occurred to me to not go to church or to go to a different church. My father had decided we were going to go to First Baptist Church in Graham, and that's where I went every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday night for my entire life until I went to college. As for him and his family, we were going to serve the Lord in that church. My father expressed leadership. Third, <clears throat> be a positive role model. Be a positive role model. You are a role model for your children, whether you like it or not. Whether you're a good role model or a bad role model, you're still a role model for your children. In other words, they are going to model their lives and are modeling their lives after you. Whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, they're going to develop your characteristics just like you have many of your parents' characteristics. See, they will inherit yours. The story is told of a little boy sitting on his front steps with his face uh, cradled in his hands and he was looking all sad. His dad came home and, and asked him what was wrong. Why was he so sad? And the boy looked up and said, well, dad, just between us, I'm having trouble getting along with your wife too. <laughs> you see, he had seen the conflict between his dad and his mom. And he realized his dad had a lot of problem with mom, and so here he is reflecting his dad. Be a role model for your kids. Be a good role model for them. You are preparing your children for adulthood, for life, and for leaving home, and they will leave home before you're ready. Someday they'll take what they've learned from you and begin to apply it out in the real world. Jesus taught his disciples many things that they didn't get. And they didn't understand at the time, but he knew the day was coming. After his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, when they would remember those important lessons that he taught them. And he taught them and led them and was a role model for them in a manner that long after he was gone, they remembered, learned those lessons, and it transformed their life. And in turn, they transformed the lives of so many others. Which leads me to the last thing you should do as a parent and the most important thing, teach them about God. Teach them about God. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 6 says this, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. Now that's a promise from the Bible. It's a general understanding that when we teach our children about God, the time will come in their life. Whether they're young, middle-aged, or elderly, the time will come in their life and they're going to be going through something in their life. Even if they have not really gone to church and have not really thought about God, God will allow them to be in a situation where if you have ingrained that faith in them, that they'll remember and they will not depart from it. Teach them why you go to church. Teach them why it's important to pray. Or read the Bible. Do they ever see you praying? Do they ever catch you reading your Bible? 
teach them. If, if your children are faithless and godless, all other things that you've taught them won't really amount to much. Teach them about their Savior. That's first. If you want to give a great gift, give the gift to your spouse or to your one that you love of being a great parent. Number two, if you love them, someone, give them a kiss. Now hold off just a minute. Uh, not every kiss is a good kiss, and so not every kind of kiss is a good kiss, but if you love them, give them a kiss. There are good kisses and bad kisses in the Bible. Just ask Judas. If you remember, Jesus was betrayed with a kiss. So be careful about a kiss. Now, there are two kinds of good kisses, by the way, I want to share with you today. You know what a bad kiss is, obviously, Jesus knew. There are two kinds of good kisses I want to share with you. Number one, we see in the Bible there is kissing, obviously, to show affection. In our passage for today in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2, it says, this is, this is the writer speaking about the one that they love. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Now, obviously, this is a young couple. <laughs> They're saying this. The, the kiss from my lover, from my spouse, is, is better than a fine drink. It, it's the best. Now, I don't know how old you are watching online. I don't know if you're young and you've never been kissed. And you have that to look forward to in life. Many of you, or most of you, probably have been kissed at one time or another. And maybe you're a million kisses in your life. Do you remember that first kiss? Remember the first time you kissed that person that you loved, that person that you married? I know you kissed them many times later, but, but that first time, that conveyed something very special to you. It was intended to show love and affection. Kissing is a funny thing. You have to understand or, or think logically, why on earth do we do that? Every now and then when I'm kissing my wife, I, I catch or we catch our dog looking at us kind of confused. <laughs> I don't think our dog understands why we're kissing one another. It's an odd thing, just logically. Even a goodbye kiss actually can make a big difference in our life because the reality is we're not robots, we're human beings. And we understand how we convey affection in a kiss. Did you know that some, some German psychologists have found a correlation between work attitudes and a morning goodbye kiss? Studies show that men who do not kiss their wives goodbye, listen to this, studies show that men who do not kiss their wives goodbye are apt to be moody, depressed, and disinterested in their jobs. But statistically, kissing husbands, that is husbands who kiss their wives, start off the day on a positive note. This positive attitude results in more efficient and safer driving practices. <laughs> I don't know how they figured that, but ladies, if your husband is a bad driver, maybe you should kiss him more, <laughs> all right? You thought it was his fault, maybe it's your fault. Yeah, I don't know the, the statistic, uh, but they are efficient and more safe in their driving practices. And then the study also said this, kissing husbands live five years longer than their less romantic counterparts. 
that showing affection to one another can actually make you live longer. That's a beautiful thing. You know, we didn't come up with kisses. God did that. Isn't that remarkable? That God did something in a way, something so simple in a way that we can express affection and it actually makes our life healthier and better. There's another kind of kiss though, and this works whether you're married or single, young or old, and it's kissing as love and honor. That is, you kiss in order to honor someone. Now bear with me just a minute. Things have changed culturally a little bit since the day of Christ. But in the day of Jesus, people would often show their guests honor in three ways. First, as they entered their house, they would greet them with a kiss. Now, they kissed them on the cheek, and men kissed men, women kissed women. That is, men didn't kiss women. There was none of that. It was very conservative, but they greeted one another with a kiss. The men would kiss the men on the cheek. The women would kiss the women on the cheek. And there are many cultures in our world today that still practice that greeting. Secondly, they would wash their feet because their feet were dirty and it was a way you could honor your guests and humble yourself and lift them up by washing their feet as they came in. They always wore sandals. They were open shoes and not clothes like what we have. And so their feet were always dirty. Usually when you entered someone's home, it was in the evening time for a meal. And by then your feet needed to be washed. And it was just something you did to honor your guests by washing their feet. The third thing that they might do is they might, if they were really a special guest, you would anoint their head with oil. Oil, this, the oil that they might use might be a little bit expensive or cost money, but it, again, it was a way to show your anointing on them or your blessing on them. You would anoint their head with oil. This is how they honored others. Now, we don't put oil on people's head. We don't wash their feet. And we don't practice kissing one another as a greeting to our friends and family and our fellow church members. Nor am I suggesting that you do those th three things. But there are ways that we show honor to people even today. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus was invited to be supposedly the guest of one of the Pharisees, a man named Simon. And it's not Simon Peter. This is Simon the Pharisee. And Jesus was invited to be his guest in his home for dinner. So Jesus went over to his house. But the Pharisee did none of those three things. But someone else did. Look with me in Luke chapter 7 in verse 36 says this. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house... She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, a very, very expensive jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water from my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. 
You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus turned to her, or said to her, your sins are forgiven. That is a beautiful story, is it not? She came up behind him because Jesus, it says, was reclining at the table. Now, they didn't have chairs or didn't use chairs. The tables were just this far off the ground. And so they sat on pillows and they put their feet behind them because you don't want your feet in front of you because that's where the food is. So they kind of sat on their side on a pillow and their feet were behind them. And so she came up behind Jesus and immediately she's weeping. She's humbled. She, she is unquestionably filled with love for her Savior. He had changed her life. And this affected her. So she's there at his feet, and his feet need to be washed because the, the host, the Pharisee that was there, who had servants that could have washed his feet, or he could have washed his feet, he, they weren't having it. They didn't honor Jesus as a guest at all. And so seeing his dirty feet, she comes up and she's crying because Jesus has changed her life. And she takes those tears, they're, going, they're washing his feet, they're going down on his feet, and she uses her hair. Now back in the first century, hair was a woman's honor. All women had long hair. And the more long your hair, and the more beautiful your hair, the more honor you, that you had. She didn't care if her hair was dirty. She wanted to take what honor she had and use it for her Savior. And she wiped his feet. She cleaned his feet with her tears and with her hair. And then she poured perfume on his feet. She anointed him. And so she was showing love. Now, husbands, wives, you love one another. There's the kiss, and then there's the kiss. <laughs> there's the kiss you do out of routine or out of habit or ritual, and you don't mean it. It's just a technicality. And then there's the kiss that you kiss one another because you love one another. And for those of you who are not husbands and wives, and for all of our other relationships and friendships with family and friends and church members, even those people that we work with, we can convey honor to them in other ways. Now, here in Texas, we give a hearty handshake. I've got people in my congregation that are huggers. In fact, this has been a difficult year with this pandemic that we can't shake hands, we can't hug quite like we want to, to show honor to others. We're having to be stretched. We're having to find other ways to honor one another. But if you really honor someone, it's going to be evident. And so... If you want to give a great gift this Valentine's, be a good parent. Secondly, honor one another. And third, if you love someone, demonstrate it. Demonstrate. Now we see in this passage that we just read, definitely that's what this woman did. She demonstrated that she loved Jesus. If your love is only hypothetical, then it isn't really love. With that, I have to share with you. The very first verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that famous love chapter 
Turn there with me, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Now, he's going to spend the first part of this chapter, the first third, almost the first half of the chapter, giving us a working definition of what love is. But as he does that, he first tells us what life is like without love. If you don't have love, this is going to be the result. And the first thing he says about that is in verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. He says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. Ladies, have you ever had a man say to you, I love you, but you knew he didn't mean it? <laughs> it's just smooth talk because he wanted something. Or men, do you ever have a girl come up and tell you that she loves you because she has an ulterior motive? This is 1 Corinthians 13. Love in general. He says, even if I can talk in the tongues of men of angels, if I'm the smoothest talker there ever was, but I don't have any love, I'm just noise. And all of that talk means nothing. And so that's what he's saying here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. He says this in the second part of the verse, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now the faith that he's talking to, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Galatia, to believers in Christ. When he talks about faith, he's talking about our faith in Jesus Christ, our faith in the resurrected Lord of our life. He says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. If you don't know any of the Bible, if you don't know what John 3.16 says, and by the way, if you don't, look it up. <laughs> That's a great verse. But if you could summarize the Bible in its entirety, in its importance, it would be found in this very verse, this very statement. The only thing that counts in life, in your relationships, at your workplace, or anywhere else you go, in your church, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. That is, if your faith in Jesus Christ is merely a construct, it's merely conceptual, it's only a hypothetical, it doesn't mean anything. I can claim anything as your pastor, but if I don't love you, what's the point? My words have no meaning. Work hard at church, in your ministries, in your mission work. But act unlovingly and it's all for nothing. Jesus went to the house of a Pharisee and he often encountered the Pharisees. These were people who had lots of theology, lots of talents. They were smooth talkers, but they had no love. And so they were empty vessels and their lives were meaningless. Singing teaching, leading, all for nothing without love. One of the most famous parables of Christ is the story of the Good Samaritan. It's the story about a man who was robbed and beaten and desperately in need of help. And there were important people that came by, a priest and a Levi. They saw the need, but they didn't love. They didn't help. They're 
so-called faith did not manifest itself in any kind of action. It didn't express itself. They just made excuses and walked on by. And finally, a man, a Samaritan man, who was looked down on and frowned upon, the Samaritans were by Jews, he walked along, not expected to help this man because he was just a no-good Samaritan. But he took pity on the man, showed compassion and love, and he helped him mended his wounds, and took him to a place where he could stay and heal. Does your love manifest itself in compassionate, caring deeds? Do you express your love? If so, how do you do that? I've told you before, if you've been here for very long, one of the odd things that happened every time we go to Israel is we end up at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The Church of Holy Sepulchre is in Jerusalem. It is an ancient church, and it's a huge facility. And in this building, because they have holy sites, and in the holy sites in Israel, they historically, over the years and in centuries, they would build churches over that holy site. And this holy site, this church, encompasses two very important locations. And we don't know for sure. But there are some caves there that they believe are the tomb, or one of which is the tomb of Jesus. And then nearby is, was a hill. Most of it's been chipped away over the years. But there is a hill, or remnants of a hill, where they say Jesus died on Calvary. So you can go for a Christian. That's the, the, the holiest site you can go to on planet Earth, really, is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the place of the, of the burial and resurrection of Jesus, the place of Calvary where he died for our sins. But there's a problem in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You would think it would be the most loving place on earth, but it is not. There are different groups there. There's Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox believers, and there's a group of people that take care of the place, and they have their processions through it. And then there's Roman Catholics that are there, and they have their procession. Each has their own priests and their own things that they do. And then there are tourists and pilgrims that are packed in there all the time. It's always packed. And between the three groups, there's a problem. Because as they have their processions through there, there's not enough room to get through. And over the years, because they don't get along with each other, and they don't particularly care for tourists either, by the way, and as a tourist, I go in there and I'm mad when I walk in because I already know somebody's going to push me out of the way. And so I develop their attitude as well. So there's a lot of pushing. So when they come by in their procession, they they're literally will push you out of the way. They'll say, coming through, coming through. And I just find that to be very rude. Here we are in this holy place of the resurrection of Jesus. And there's no love. There's just pushing and shoving. What do you think God thinks of that? Oh, my goodness. And then lastly, I'll leave you with this. If you love someone, here's a good Valentine's gift. Change your language. Change your language. That is, offer the gifting of encouragement, and you can do that today. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 10, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Thessalonica. He said, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of our salvation, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Husbands, wives, you say you will love one another. 
but you spend your time criticizing and tearing each other down, that's not love. You want to give a good gift today? Express love through encouragement. Make everything that you say today an encouraging word. Make everything that you say today be designed to lift someone up. That person or those people that you care about, lift them up. What a great gift to give. Have you ever had the experience of being somewhere in your car, maybe on a cold day like today, and you go out and you, you turn that, um, uh, that ignition and you just hear that brr, 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 brr. And it's a dead battery. Never happens on a pretty day. <laughs> it's always on one of these winter. Rah, 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 rah. And you go, oh, no. And, you know, out of, you know, just you don't have anything else to do. You don't know what else to do. So you just keep, dry, you keep trying it until there's just no battery left. And you know what you have to do? You have to flag somebody down or call somebody. They come along beside you with a pair of jumper cables and they connect their strong battery to your weak battery and you're able to start that car because it gives power to your battery. The word encouragement in the Bible is exactly that kind of thing. It is, it is referencing a transfer of power to make the weak strong. People need your strength today. Your husband, your wife, your loved ones, they need your strength. And you have strength to give them. And how do you convey that? You don't hook up jumper cables to them. The way that you take your strength and you give it to them is through words of encouragement. And it doesn't take a scholar to do that. You don't have to be a, a genius with language to do that. All of you know how to do that. I encourage you to give that gift today. In Philemon chapter 1 verse 7 and I'll leave you with this. It says, your love has given me, I just love this. Listen to this. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement. There's that word. Because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Now, here's what he's saying to Fleeman. He says, your encouragement has given him personally. He says, it's given me personally great joy and encouragement singular. He's talking about him. He received that love and it gave him encouragement and joy. But then he talks about the hearts of the saints. And so here's, here's what I believe that this passage is saying. And I'm right. Here's what he's saying. He says, you encouraged me. You lifted me up. You gave me joy. And in turn, I went to all the rest of the believers that are around me and I refreshed their hearts with your joy that you gave through me. You empowered me and I empowered others. You lifted me up, I lifted others. Everybody rejoices, everybody benefits from you expressing your love. And so when you lift up others, you encourage others today, maybe just one person, but maybe 10 people or 20 people will be encouraged and lifted up because of that one encouragement that you gave. That's very powerful. So today, if you want to give great, a great Valentine's Day gift to someone in your life that's dear and special, be a great parent. Kiss them or find a way to honor them. Demonstrate that you love them and offer them words 
of encouragement. You do that, and today will be a great Valentine's Day. Pray with me. Father, we thank you and praise you for these words and these passages from, from, from your heart. You who created relationships, you who are the very definition of love, help us to convey it this Valentine's Day to those around us. May we share the love of Christ around us to our children, to our spouse. May we honor others and lift them up. May we speak words of encouragement, not words of criticism, not words that tear down, but words that build up. May we give them the energy and the joy to make it through the day and through the week. May we help their life and not hinder it. In the name of Christ and for his glory, amen.